We've had a, quite a bit of teaching in the church and a tradition in the church that has caused us to have a very complex response to God. We're trying to cross every T, dot every I, trying to get everything perfect in order to receive healing, where Jesus did not require people to do that. He only required them to come to him for help. And today it's just as easy to come to Jesus. Actually, it's easier if we come in the spirit. He is very approachable. Have you, uh, have you ever considered the verse of scripture that says, let me just read it to you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Here Jesus describes himself as being gentle and humble in heart. What is he saying? He's saying he's approachable. We can come to him with whatever need we have, and he will not reject us. We can come and expect him to help us with those things. During, the, uh, during the, the lunch break, we had quite a number of conversations and questions and various different things, and one of the things that comes up is, how do we pray for children? And, uh, you know, if you're dealing with a sick child, uh, uh, anybody who's ever had that experience, I'm sure, um, knows it can be quite a, a long, grueling pro- process if you have a very sick child and you just don't know how that's going to change. People who have sick children, Jesus, when they were brought to Jesus, he often spoke to the parents and said to the parents, don't be afraid. The reason that I believe Jesus did that is that when you're dealing with a sick child, you'll have a tendency to be afraid as a parent. You'll project out into the future a negative outcome potentially. If something doesn't change in this child's situation, then what will be the result in 10 years? You know, will the child die? Will we as parents have a lifetime of taking care of this disabled child and so on. So when we're dealing with this particular situation, it's a little different in that we, Jesus did look to the parents to believe. Remember the man came to him with a sick child and said, if you can do anything to help him. And Jesus corrected him saying, if I can, all things are possible to him who believes. Jesus was looking to the father to believe for the sake of this child. And so in those circumstances, what we need to do is sometimes we need to recognize that those parents are not really able at that moment to believe for a miracle. They're, in fact, fear is really the opposite of faith. Fear projects out a negative outcome in the future. Faith projects a positive outcome because of what Jesus has done. So sometimes we have to get people out of the all-or-nothing mode, out of the place of desperation where they can be at peace about it at some level and talk to them perhaps about approaching it a little differently, maybe believing God to help the child rather than to heal the child. And what happens is if, we, if they're looking for all or nothing, if we can get maybe a 10% healing happening, and then another 10%, and another 10%, and another 10%, and sometimes what we see is this thing called critical mass. They get to the place where they really see that something has changed in their child's experience, and they get the whole miracle uh, at the whole the time. But they got, actually got healing 10% of the time. See, many people are not really prepared to believe for a huge miracle, but they can believe that God will help this situation. So if you can get out of that all or nothing mode and believe God will help you help that situation a little bit, then when you get that help from God, something changes, you grab hold of it, thank God for it. And what we have seen many, many times, immediately after someone does that, they get more from God. Because it's a faith response that says, thank you. Thank you from God. So you can approach some things by getting a little bit of healing, a little bit of healing. I told you the story of Elaine. Her healing came as a process. She got, her pain disappeared. Then her arm started working. 
Then she attempted to get up. She was able to move her back. She got up. Even though she was weak, she got her full healing over a period of, they tell me it was 40 minutes from beginning to end ministering to her. So if you can get a little bit, then you can get more. If you can get more, you can get the whole thing. Yes? Yes. That make it easier? See, many people are not prepared to, you know, really come to the place where they feel like they could jerk somebody out of a wheelchair and so on. You don't have to do that. If they get healed and they're in the wheelchair, they'll just get out. Okay? Moving right along here. Okay, we were talking about four men's faith. It's possible to believe for other people. Certainly we do that when we're praying for other people at a distance. Um, It's also possible to minister healing over the telephone. I had a lady call me, a lady friend call me and said, would you consider ministering to this guy in this other state? And and, uh, he was in hospice care, dying of cancer, and and he had been a healing evangelist. And uh, sometimes people who minister healing do need to be ministered healing. And uh, in any case, uh, he was not receiving his healing. And so I I said to her, you know, sometimes relationships between ministers are a little bit tricky because I don't want to step on his toes and try to tell him things that he already understands. So you tell him that uh, if you'd call and prepare the way a little bit for me, I'd tell him that I like to want to, I want to go over the good news with him before we pray, and I already understand he understands these things, but I'm doing it for my, for my sake as much as for his. That I want to be in the right context. I want to, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I want to hear the, the word too. Even if I'm speaking it, it has an impact on me. I preach myself into faith quite often. And uh, in any case, uh, so she called me back. She said, it's quite all right. He's willing to do that. So I, I called the man, and very gracious man. I talked to him on the phone. He did sound weak and uh, in hospice and, and uh, prayed with him over the telephone after I shared good news with him. And, uh, and uh, about two weeks later, the, my woman friend called me, and she said, did you hear the story about this guy? I said, no, no. What story? She said, well, he got hot after he prayed with you. He stayed hot for three days. The nurses thought that he had a fe- you know, was having a fever or something, and they tried to get his temperature down. They couldn't get his temperature down. But at the end of the three days, he didn't have cancer. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I believe it's about Jesus. See, it's, it's, it was faith in Christ. I didn't lay hands on him. There's no, nothing happening in me that caused that to have, you know, his, his healing, he receives healing. Over the years, we've had many events like this that have really communicated in a clear way. It's not power in Roger, it's power in Jesus that does these things. See, that's a very important aspect of things. I was uh, ministering in New Jersey, and three churches had come together and ended up with about 600 people for me to minister to. Quite too many, quite frankly. And I get into big churches sometimes, and if they don't have a team, I got trouble. So we create a team as quickly as we can because it's way too many people for me to minister to. In any case, uh, I understand why Jesus multiplied his ministry because you just end up with way too much need. But in any case, uh, um, they, uh, the, I realized that uh, we just had an evening to do this and there were 600 people waiting on for me to pray for them. The, the other, there was no team in this situation and I really was not in the mode of creating teams in those days. So I said to the folks, listen, my normal way of doing ministry is to interview you and find out what's wrong with you and then lay hands on you and look to Jesus with you. In this particular case, I don't really think I can do that. If I, if I tr- attempt to do that, there's going to be a lot of people who will be disappointed and we won't get a chance to minister to them. And uh, people are going to get discouraged and they're going to quit, you know, go home before it's over with. And so let me just suggest this to you. Jesus knows what's wrong with you. I don't need to know. 
I'll look to Jesus with you. You point to me where you want me to put my hands. I'll look to Jesus with you. You look to him, and we'll expect that something will happen. And we set up a microphone so people could come and testify if they received something. And things were going pretty well in that regard. And we were going through this line of folks pretty quickly. And there's a man in a wheelchair. Now, people are in wheelchairs for various different reasons. You know, they, uh, somebody might have been just weak. There actually may be something, someone sitting in a pew somewhere that's actually more ill than a person in a wheelchair. You should not evaluate things by what you see because sometimes people have had an operation or something. They're just having difficulty walking. And they're just weak, and so they're in the wheelchair. They may not be seriously ill. But, so, but I don't know what's wrong with this guy, and, but uh, I'm not interviewing anybody, so I'm not going to find out. So I just, uh, his wife indicates that he wants me to put my hands on his head, so I put my hands on his head, and immediately this guy begins to stand up, and she goes, he couldn't do that. And I said, well, cool, wonderful, thank you, Jesus. And so they start walking around the edge of the building, and and I'm not really paying attention too much to them. I'm going back to ministering to people and laying hands on them. And about five minutes later, she yells at me, He's hearing! I said, He was deaf? <laughs> yes, he was completely deaf. I said, Well, cool. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. About five minutes later, she yells at me again, He's talking! I said, He couldn't speak? No, he's been mute for years. Now, See, all I did was look to Jesus. Jesus wanted healing him. See? See, we don't produce something. That's a very important aspect. It's not power in us that produces something. It's what Jesus has done. The Holy Spirit makes that real in people's experience. And that's where we need to keep our faith. Don't get on God's side of the equation trying to produce something. That's God's side of the equation. Your side of the equation is to believe. That's your side of the equation. You can't produce anything. It's to believe that the work has been done and receive it. That is your side of the equation. And, of course, for those, those of us who are preachers, you know, and then our side of the equation is also to preach the good news in, the, in a believing kind of way. And it is your side of the equation, too, to share the good news when you have an opportunity to share with something about what God wishes to do for them. See, when you have that opportunity, you should do that in the create the right kind of context. We go a little further in this, these stories here. The Samaritan, one of the ten lepers was healed. Luke chapter 17, verse 19. He said to him, Jesus said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know the story here. The ten lepers overcame their reluctance to come near to well people. Remember in that culture, lepers were not supposed to come near to people who are well. In fact, they were to cry out, uh, unclean, 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 you know, as they came near to somebody who was well. They were not supposed to come near them. And yet the scripture tells us in this passage they came near to Jesus. They overcame their reluctance to do that, to receive something. Jesus ministered, told them all to go to the priest to prove that they were well, which was what they did in this culture under the law of Moses. Go, go be examined by the priest. And as the scripture says, as they were going. By the way, they wouldn't have gone if they hadn't believed. And as they were going, they received. There's a very important thing to see that they acted in faith and they were able to receive. And they acted before they had it, the manifestation in their body. It's a very important aspect. Faith is the substance of things that are hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith comes first and then the substance of what it is you're believing for. We come to Jesus expecting to receive something, knowing that the work has been done for us, that it's ours already, it already belongs to us, and as a result of knowing it belongs to us, the Holy Spirit comes and makes it real in our experience. Pray and ask, believing that you have received and it shall be granted to you. And many people want 
to experience it before they believe it. But you have to believe it before you experience it. Yes? Okay, good. Failures in healing described as a lack of faith in Jesus' own hometown, Nazareth, Matthew 13, 58. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, unbelief, we're going to talk about doubt in a few minutes, but unbelief and doubt are not the same thing. Unbelief is a negative of the word faith. In Greek, if you put an alpha in front of a Greek word, it negates the word in many cases. For instance, the Greek word theos is the Greek word for God. And if you put ah in front of it, the alpha sound in front of it is atheos. What does that sound like to you? Atheist. Exactly where the word atheist comes from, which means the belief that there's no God. Atheist, atheos means no God. It negates the word God. Okay? If you, lithia is the Greek word for hidden. Okay? If you put an alpha in front of lithia, you put, it becomes alithia, and it is, means no hiddenness. It's the Greek word for truth. No hiddenness. So, so what we see is in Greek that this is quite a common thing. When in this case, the Greek word for faith has an alpha in front of it. Pistos becomes apistos, and it's translated as unbelief. It means that they had no faith. And what does that mean? If we define faith as coming to Jesus, that's what we see in these other passages, coming to Jesus for help, then what did they do in Jesus' own hometown? They didn't come. For help. In fact, we know, and from Mark's gospel, the way they reacted to him is that he's the carpenter's son. We know his mother and brothers and sisters. Basically, we're saying, who does he think he is? And that's where the passage talks about a prophet without honor among his own kin. That, by the way, that phenomenon happens in nearly every family. It took my father 10 years to believe that I actually was doing healing ministry. It was only seeing a bunch of stuff happen on video that convinced him. You know, I could tell him all day long that Jesus was healing the sick in our ministry, but he wouldn't have believed it. But uh, late, in, late in his life, I mean, seeing it made him a believer. Late in his life, uh, in fact, uh, on his, the last month of his life, he ended up in a hospital uh, room in, uh, at uh, MD Anderson in, in Houston. And uh, uh, it was interesting to me is that, you know, I, I usually get a, Pretty good amount of bookings and lots of lots of invitations to go minister and and I just didn't get any bookings for this particular period of time, which usually means that God's going to do something in that period of time. And, I, and so my father's ends up in the hospital, so I end up spending uh, the last month of my father's life with him. And I couldn't find anything wrong with him. In fact, he just was weak. He was 83 years old, and he just was weak, and that's why he ended up in the hospital. He did all sorts of tests. Made all kinds of speculation of what was wrong with him, but could never really identify anything. Just was old, I think. And uh, in any case, uh, he had all sorts of fears about how he was going to die. He was going to lose his mind to Alzheimer's. He had, he uh, he was he was afraid he was going to run run out of money. He was all these things, one thing after another. By the way, the, it's not true that all our fears come upon us, because none of that stuff happened. He died with plenty of money. <laughs> Way too much. Uh, he he had, had his family around him. He was reconciled to God. He was reconciled to me and my sister. He was, you know, really everything was right. In fact, he, sp- he and I spent his last month uh, discussing preachers on the television. Uh, he liked Elvis hymns. And so we listened to Elvis singing hymns, Amazing Grace. At one point, my father said, if, Roger, if I go on to be with the Lord, can't, you think it's okay for me to have an Elvis hymn at my funeral? And I said, you know, Dad, you're not really going to be there. 
<laughs> so I don't really think it matters much. <laughs> Too, but as far as I'm concerned, you can have anything you want. <laughs> and uh, he introduced me to the man next door to him, which was in the same business my father was in, oil business. And uh, he introduced me to this man. This man was a uh, was Acadian man, Cajun, what they usually call him, uh, French, uh, French background, lived in Louisiana. And this man had had uh, open chest surgery, I guess probably for a heart situation or something, I'm not sure. But in any case, he had developed a raging infection in this wound. Uh, seven hot spots is the way he described it to me, and that they had given him every medication known to man, and he still wasn't getting well. And they had told him that the likelihood uh, that he was going to die. He had all the blood chemistry that was really in bad shape. And uh, so my father introduced him to me and explained to him that my son prays for people who are sick and they get healed. Would you like him to pray for you? And, uh, and so the man obviously said, yes, okay. And so, so I shared the good news with this man there and laid hands on him. We were actually sitting in a lounge when this was happening in the hospital and laid hands on the man and prayed for him. Well, during the night, his wound drained, which he didn't tell me was a problem, but uh, he was, apparently all the infection was building up in his body and his wound drained, and they could only find one little pinpoint of infection the next day. And the following day, that was gone. Well, this guy was ecstatic. I mean, they were telling him he was going to die probably, you know, and here all of a sudden he's not sick anymore. The infection is completely gone, and he's pretty ecstatic. And in fact, he was going up and down the hallway. He's feeling pretty good going up and down the hallway telling everybody that he met a healer. <laughs> of course, he was talking about me, and I kept telling him, no, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. At one point, he, uh, after a couple of days, they were going to release him, and when he found out he was going to be released to go home and he was going to, he was going to get well, uh, he, he invited me into his room and uh, bowed his head and said, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> Roman Catholic background, I think. And so I did. I blessed him. <laughs> and then invited him to receive Christ as his Savior, and he prayed to receive Christ as his Savior with me. Now, he, uh, he was so enthusiastic that the people next door on the other side of my dad's room heard this testimony that, you know, he didn't have the infection anymore, that, that I prayed for him, and Jesus had healed him, and they were Christians. This man uh, probably wasn't a Christian. Well, certainly wasn't a practicing Christian, the, the Cajun man. But in any case... Uh, he, uh, uh, the, the couple, in this case, it was an elderly couple, and the woman had full-blown Alzheimer's. And uh, she also was there in the hospital because of something else, and that something else was really what was taking her life. And uh, her husband, you know, didn't have Alzheimer's. In fact, he was quite sharp. And, and he heard this testimony and asked me if I would come and pray for her. And uh, I said yes, but at that particular day, my father was... Uh, Taking, doing a series of tests. They're still trying to figure out what was wrong with him. And in uh, any case, uh, so I felt responsible to stay with him through that process. So I just gave them a DVD, and my, we had a little, uh, in the room with my dad, we had a little DVD player. And uh, so I gave him one of my DVDs, and, and so he watched it, although I don't know how much she absorbed from it. But anyway, they watched it that evening, and I came back that evening and laid hands on her and prayed for her. And three days later, not only did she not have Alzheimer's, but she was completely healed, and they, and, and they were saying, a miracle. She was released from the hospital. So none of these things are hard because Jesus is the one doing it, and that's where you have to. See, you know, when I say that, some of the people don't think that I really mean it, but I actually really mean it that I am not the one healing people, and therefore I can take no credit for it. 
It doesn't, you know, to see a miracle happen. I'm glad to see it, but I uh, probably would react differently than many other people would because I know it's Jesus has done it and not me. Everybody get this? So it's very important to, to come to that place where you really do understand that. Can you get out of the equation? See, I'm not producing it. I'm not making it happen. It's not because of me and my righteousness. It's all because of what Jesus has done. And it's very important to come to that conclusion. We see also... Um, that Jesus explains the disciples to failure to heal, heal, heal a boy in terms of faith as well. In fact, many people focus a little bit on the last part of this, this story, but uh, the disciples asked Jesus why couldn't they cast this demon out, and he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. This is the first thing he said. Remember the boy was diagnosed as being, uh, it's, uh, in King James's lunatic, uh, which means uh, in Greek, it's actually the Greek word moon-smitten. Greek, it's translated as moon smitten. He's been affected by the moon. He fell into the fire and fell into the uh, water. And, and what, of course, is the, they're misdiagnosing the circumstance. The father's misdiagnosing it, and it turns out to be a demon that Jesus deals with after the disciples fail to deal with it. And Jesus doesn't say it's not God's will for them to do it. He says because of the littleness of their faith. Is it possible that there are situations that appear in our circumstance and we're simply not prepared to deal with them? Can we just say that? Just take my humble posture and say, yeah, all of us have faced situations where we were not prepared to deal with it. And unfortunately, sometimes in theology, we thought God was the problem, but really maybe we've been the problem. And it's really better to be in that place than it is to, uh, to suggest something different than that, because what suggesting something different creates doubt for other people. Uh, I had an invitation to go out to uh, Arizona <clears throat> to a church. A pastor called me. He, said, he explained it this way. He said, Roger, we've had healing happening in our church for many years, for decades. He said, but my wife developed cancer, and she didn't receive healing, and, uh, and now I have, I have Parkinson's, and so I have the, the shaking. And he says, it's very evident to my people that I'm not, not well, and since that time, since these two things have, events have happened, healing has disappeared from our church. Do you think that you could get healing working again in our church? And I said, yeah, I think I can if you don't mind me putting words in the, in the mouth of your wife. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I think you know, what happens is, is that people, when they see failure in the area of healing, it dampens their faith considerably, but they mis sometimes misinterpret the failure. They think that somehow or another God was at fault in some sort of way. And when that happens, it dampens everybody. Said, so what I would do is I'd put words in the wife, your, your mouse wife, saying something like this. I would have her say to us in the message that if she, if she could speak to us right now, what she would tell us is that she didn't receive healing, but it wasn't God's fault, and that there may be a somewhat of a mystery in the circumstance of why she didn't, but, but given uh, enough time, an additional time, we probably would have gotten her healed, that God was not the problem in that circumstance. And if you'll let me do that and bring back the whole business that it is God's will, even though we failed to get this person healed, then we'll start seeing healing happen again. Can't we just admit that we failed? You know, it's not God's fault. It's our fault if there's a fault to be thing. But we don't need to blame ourselves because we're all doing all that we know to do. Is that true? I mean, we work at this sometimes. I've seen churches really work hard to get someone healed and don't succeed at it. But, it's, you know, the bottom line is that we're doing this so much better than we used to. 
You know, we're getting people healed that we never would have gotten healed 10 years ago. And you want to believe 10 years from now, I think we'll even do this hugely better than we're doing now. And so we're going to succeed where we failed in the past. We're going to get better at this. But there's no reason to in any way accept the idea God doesn't want us well, even if we don't get everyone well that we pray with. My father went on to be with the Lord with zero pain, you know, and I think that that's the ideal. And I'm expecting, by the way, to, to, when I die, assuming the Lord doesn't come back sooner than, than that, when I die, I'm going to be well on both sides. I'm going to put my head on the pillow well and wake up in heaven well. You don't have to be sick to die. People die all the time who are not sick. You know that's true? In fact, it's enough of a phenomenon. They call it a syndrome, sudden death syndrome. People just die who are completely well. When they do an autopsy, they find nothing wrong with them. So I don't know about you, but I, I think I can go that way. Yeah. And live a full life. You know, receive healing every time I need healing. You know, just keep coming back to the Lord, coming back for strength, well-being from Him. And then when it's time for me to go be with the Lord, I just put my head on the pillow and I wake up in heaven the next day or that, that evening. See, the suggestion that we must be sick to die is not true. Now, the fact is that many of us have seen our loved ones and so on die that way. And we're probably still going to see some of that. You know, but the bottom line is we're going to get better at this. There's no condemnation. We're doing the best we know to do. Yes? yes? And those people are doing the best they know to do, but we're going to get better. That's the important thing. All right. Okay, moving right along. Humility knows that something's still needed in faith. We can grow, in other words. Page 7, Galatians error. Now, the Galatians error is fairly familiar to most people. It's the whole business of called legalism. Everybody say legalism. legalism. Now, legalism is the idea that we have to fulfill conditions in order to receive things from God. It minimizes what Jesus has done and maximizes our labor. It maximizes our righteousness, our labor, puts all the whole burden on us in the sense of fulfilling conditions in order to receive something. See, we receive healing because of what Jesus has done, right? Don't we do that? Yeah, so it's not really about us. In fact, legalism is one of those things that prevents people from receiving because they are focusing their attention in the wrong place. Legalism has requirements and conditions to simple faith in Christ to be healed. It therefore creates doubt in us that we've met the conditions. When you get into a legalistic mode, there's always a sense that maybe something else you're missing. Another rock to unturn. Something else, some other T to cross, some other I to dot. We're just not really getting there yet, you know, that kind of thing. It focuses our attention on us. It makes the whole center of attention us and what we're doing rather than Christ and what he's done. And that's a very important distinction. Anything that focuses on us is probably going to be, prob is going to be problematic in the way we handle things. And here's some ideas. Legalism, you're not healed because you're not. And you can fill in the blanks. Breaking curses. By the way, Jesus does not teach his disciples to break curses. You don't find a single example of breaking curses from Genesis to Revelation. There's no example of it in the Scripture at all. No one is breaking curses in the Scriptures. There's curses in the Scriptures. There's just no one breaking them. It's an interesting thing that's an, a completely absent from the Bible. In fact, the phrase breaking a curse or even the idea about it doesn't present itself in the Bible at all. <laughs> we'll talk more about that later. 
You're not renouncing the occult? Where do you find anybody renouncing the occult in the scripture? Does Jesus teach his disciples to renounce the occult? There's a theology about renouncing the occult that does not find its way into the scriptures. It's just not there in the New Testament at all. Jesus doesn't teach us that we're under the authority of the devil, ever. In fact, everything he says tells us we're not under the authority of the devil. And it's unconditional. It's not based on our behavior or our doing things. It's based on what the cross has accomplished. We are in complete authority over the devil because of what Jesus has done. And that's not based on our behavior. It's based on what Jesus has done. It is stable. Uh, renouncing the occult, uh, forgiving others, uh, giving, praying, submitting, attending church. Any human act, any religious act does not um, prevent us from being healed, is not needed to be healed. In fact, it's, you know, again, it's not about us, it's about what Jesus has done, see. So when people put these kind of conditions on people in order to receive healing, then what they're doing is adding a legalistic burden for people to cross, the Colossians error is similar, but a little different. The Colossians error, Paul talks about the Colossians that they had gotten away from Christ. The Colossians error can be defined as superstition. A superstition, from my perspective, superstition is ideas, spiritual ideas that are not measured carefully by what Jesus taught. I'll give you some examples. Something unknown and mysterious is blocking your healing. People talk to me and they say, I've got a blockage, Roger. I can't get received healing because I've got a blockage. And I say, well, what is it? Well, I don't know. Mysterious. Don't know what's blocking me. You know what's blocking them? The idea that they have a blockage. Because now they're failing to believe because they believe they have a blockage. Did Jesus teach his disciples that people have blockages? Did anybody in the New Testament reveal this particular idea? It's an unbiblical idea that somebody has a blockage. And once people have it in their head, then they cease believing. In other words, now I've got to figure out what this problem is and solve it, and then I can come to Jesus and receive healing. We must discern the root of your sickness in order to deal with the fruit it produces. Where does Jesus teach anybody to look for roots on things? He doesn't teach them to do that. People get healed. When they come and God deals with the roots, but we don't have to know what they are. We don't have to analyze it. Kind of a baptized form of psychology is what it is. A Christianized form of psychology. You have a slumbering spirit that must be awakened for you to be healed. Very popular teacher. Sold thousands and thousands of books which teaches this throughout the body of Christ. The reason people are not healed is because you have a slumbering spirit and we must awaken that slumbering spirit. Where does Jesus teach his disciples to awaken slumbering spirits? Revelation not found in the scripture, which means it's false revelation. My cancer, well, let's see, you're not healed because you have disunity in your marriage. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? Okay, all you folks in the multitudes, those of you who had good marriages, come over here because we're going to get you healed today. <laughs> those of you who had bad marriages, you know, sorry, we're going to have to do counseling with you first. And then we'll solve that marital problem and you'll be able to receive, receive healing. These ideas prevent people from coming in a simple way. They are not biblical. They, they, certainly it's not something the apostles would have known. If you'd ask Peter, that is having a good marriage a prerequisite in order to get healed? Peter would have said, where would you get that idea? <laughs> my cancer is a, disun- is a reflection of disunity in my church. I'll be healed when there's unity in my church. A pastor actually told me this one. And uh, he said, there'll be unity in my church. Uh, I mean, I'll get healed when there's unity in my church. So I said, oh, so you're going to die, huh? Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> he laughed and I laughed. You know, you, get a lot of, you can say a lot of things if you laugh when you say them, you know, and smile. You get away with a lot of things. And, uh, and I said, you know what? I don't think you have control over unity in your church. People do what they're going to do. You know, we do the best we can as leaders and we preach unity and so on, but people don't have to do it. They have free will. So we have no control over unity of the church. And if healing is based on what other people are doing, we got trouble. It's based on something more solid than that. It's based on what Jesus has done. See, this is a very spiritual way of looking at cancer. Disunity in my body, disunity in the church. Making a reflect, you know, seeing that as a parallel and seeing one is symbolic of the other. It's a very spiritual way. It just doesn't have to be true. And we have to be able to evaluate spiritual ideas that present themselves to us and understand that Jesus did not teach you. Remember I said last night, the first thing that began to happen to me that really helped me in my faith and simplicity is that I began to notice that many of the things that I had been taught were not found in the ministry of Christ. They were simply absent. That really helped begin to discover that Jesus didn't do a lot of this stuff that people have us doing. He didn't have a lot of these ideas, didn't present these ideas to his disciples. Quite the contrary, what he presented was much simpler, much simpler and easier to understand. I'm an intercessor bearing the sicknesses of someone else. I probably had, uh, before I started teaching this, I probably had uh, 25 women over a period of two or three years to say this to me. It was all women that they had felt the call of being an intercessor, which I believe God does call more women than men to this thing. However, they thought that being an intercessor meant that they had to bear the sicknesses of other people. One lady told me, I'm bearing the cancer of a pastor across town. I said, really? Is it working? She said, what do you mean? I said, is he still sick? Well, yes, I guess he is. That's an appropriate question. I mean, when somebody says they're doing something like this, and she says, so it's not working. You know what? I don't really think that that's what's actually happening because Jesus bore the sickness for both of you. See, she, and without realizing it, had begun to replace Jesus in the plan of God. By the way, that's called antichrist. The Greek word anti doesn't mean just against. In fact, the primary meaning of the Greek word anti is in place of. The spirit of antichrist is the spirit that comes to replace Christ in his church. And so when someone takes the role of Christ, then they are antichrist in that sense, without really realizing it. Uh, I, am, I discern that the stiffness in your neck is because you're being stubborn. <laughs> Spiritualizing sickness, uh, giving it meaning uh, in this sense, in other words, creating a character problem for someone to resolve is a very common error that we see. Someone has bad feet, it's because you've been going places you shouldn't go. Someone's not, you can't hear, it's because you haven't been listening to God. Somebody uh, has a bad back, it's because you've been carrying too heavy a load, uh, spiritually, you know. Uh, what they're doing is they're creating, they're saying that the physical problem that people have is a result of some spiritual problem that they have. Creating a whole new set of problems for them to resolve. They have to resolve the first problem before they come and get healed. And it is the Colossians there. Jesus did not do this to people. He did it just exactly the opposite. What he told people who were hearing but weren't listening to him, he told the Pharisees who were not sick, he said, you're deaf, you're not hearing. You're not seeing. He told you that they were spiritually blind, even though they were, they, were, uh, they were actually seeing. He never told a blind person the reason they were blind is because they had a spiritual problem to resolve. You get this? 
See, and this particular thing happens a great deal among renewal people. The projection of some sort of emotional character issue or something else that they must solve before they come and receive their healing. And it's not right. We've got to not do this to people, create new barriers, new difficulties for them to solve. Um, people have been speaking, so you need to break generational curses over you. Again, the Bible does not teach this. You just don't find anybody breaking curses anywhere. It's a theology that's been presented since the 1980s. Before 1980, I don't think anybody believed that Christians needed to break curses. And there were victorious Christians before 1980. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly popular heresy that spread throughout the body of Christ, and lots of very well-known people are preaching it and teaching it, and yet there's no equivalent in the Scriptures at all. You don't see a single example of anyone breaking a curse. In fact, the Bible doesn't even encourage us to even consider that we could be cursed. The New Testament doesn't reflect this idea whatsoever. You can go through every word that's translated curse in Greek. You can't find a single one of those verses that anyway suggests that Christians could be successfully cursed. I don't know about you, but I think I'm blessed. It got really quiet in here. Christ did not spiritualize physical disease. He simply healed the sick. He didn't teach his disciples to look for roots or break curses or solve character flaws before they receive healing. The healing that they received was comprehensive. Everybody say comprehensive. comprehensive. Now, we did not deny that people get sick because of certain character issues. Obviously, someone who's drinking too much can get ill because they're drinking too much. Uh, people you know, do various different things because of character issues, sometimes of pain that they're experiencing in their past. You know, a lot of people who are alcoholics are simply medicating their pain, emotional pain. And we can have compassion for people, you know, in that sense. And they cause a lot of havoc in their families because of dealing with it this way. But we can understand that why they might do it. So when people come for healing, even though we know potentially that their problem was caused by something else, when they receive healing, we expect it to be comprehensive, going to the root of the problem. God needs to, God does this, even though we may not be aware specifically of what the problem is, God knows. So when someone comes, they got problems as a result of certain behavior patterns, they have grace to change after they receive their physical healing. It comes comprehensively with other grace to change. Someone comes, and I've seen this before. Someone came, I remember this man came, and he had a pack of cigarettes, and he has emphysema, and he's got the oxygen tank. Now, believe me, I think this man understands that his emphysema was a result of smoking. He understands that, and probably would have quit if he had the capacity to do so. He just can't. He's hooked. You believe people? I believe people sometimes just can't. They can't change. They need help from God. So we pray for this man. He gets completely healed on the spot. Now, do you believe that he has also grace to stop smoking? I do. Why would God do that and not give him the other? You understand? So it's comprehensive. It goes to the root. So he has grace now to stop smoking. But in this particular case, he doesn't. Well, actually he did. He stopped, I think, for four months, I think is what he said. Something like that. Three or four months he stopped. He said didn't need to smoke after that, but he was tempted again, went back to smoking. We see him a, uh, a couple years later, emphysema again. He's got a pack of cigarettes in his pocket. Now Jesus healed him again. 
What do you think? You bet. He gets healed again. This time I say to him, I say to him, now, you don't need to smoke. At that point he told me something like, yeah, you know, I was free from that for, for months and months and months. I didn't. I said, well, this time why don't you stay free? Just receive a comprehensive and don't come back and, you know, for emphysema again. You may need to come back for something else, <laughs> but don't come back from emphysema. So what we've seen sometimes is people get grace to change, but don't, don't always invoke it, don't always participate in it, don't always change. But they can. They can change so they don't have the same behavior problems anymore. Everybody say comprehensive. comprehensive. Say, Jesus who heals people knows everything about them. Jesus the healer is one that heals the brokenhearted, sets the captive free. He's the one that delivers them from their sins. He's the one that, uh, you know, uh, if they've got demonic activity in their life, if they come to him as healer and it's really demonic activity, he helps them with that. He deals with that. So we don't have to know everything in advance. We don't have to, have to figure out what it is that God has to deal with in this circumstance. I told some stories during lunch. Did I tell you the story of the two women with arthritis in Denver? Did I tell you that story? I'm just going to get confused if I... I was in Denver, and there was two women with arthritis, pretty severe arthritis, both in wheelchairs in this meeting. And at a certain point in the meeting, I went over to pray with one of them, and heat flowed to this particular woman, which is, I understand, to be healing, okay? The gift of healing functioning. And this woman, within a matter of minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, she's completely free from her arthritis. She's walking around demonstrating that she doesn't have arthritis anymore. And... uh, about another few minutes, I walked over to this other woman, the same, same apparent condition, arthritis, in a wheelchair, laid hands on this woman, electricity flowed, and I felt a demon go out of her. She said, I felt it leave. Now, I think she was talking about the arthritis, what she felt the arthritis, she felt the sickness leave her, but it was really demonic activity. And, uh, and immediately she's out of the wheelchair, instantaneous kind of thing happening here. The people saw it, of course. They saw what it looked like a miracle to them. So here, Jesus knew what to do for each of these women, even though Roger had no clue. They they came to Jesus, healing flowed to one, deliverance to the other. Because Jesus is both a healer and a deliverer. We don't have to understand all the, 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 the ramifications, the parameters of their situation. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to analyze it to get healing affected. What we need to do is help them come to Jesus who understands all those things. Do you believe Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father? You do believe he's more real than we are, right? He has more substance than you and I do? Okay. See, that's the one we're talking about. He's able to communicate with every person in this room anytime he wants to. By the way, you are not spiritually deaf. You can't hear God talk to you. Turn to somebody and say, you're not spiritually deaf. Some people think they are. God, believe me, God, it's not, it's not your ability to hear that's the issue. It's God's ability to speak that's the issue. He can drop a dream on you anytime he wants. Yes? Yeah, in fact, God gives, I have quite a few dreams. It's not because I'm spiritual. It's because I don't listen during the day. <laughs> I'm too busy during the day. I've got my, I'm doing all kinds of things. I've got 20 irons in the fire, you know. And so God gives me, he knows I want to hear, but I'm busy. So he speaks to me in dreams. So if you think it's spiritual, it may not be so spiritual. <laughs> Moving right along. Let's turn to, what about forgiving others? Okay. Is this a prerequisite for healing? No, we don't see it as a prerequisite. Obviously, 
if it was a prerequisite, we couldn't get people of other faiths healed. You know, we couldn't get a Hindu healed. We couldn't get a Buddhist healed. We, in fact, a witch wouldn't get healed. Can you imagine just saying to a witch, um, you know, Jesus will heal you, but you've got to forgive everybody first. In fact, that doesn't really work in most situations. So what, is, what does the New Testament actually teach about forgiving others? Well, it teaches, first of all, it's a very, very important thing to do. It is an issue of discipleship. If you're, going to be walk, if you're going to walk with Jesus, you have to forgive others. It is enlightened self-interest when you really understand it because it's for your benefit, not for theirs. It completely sets you free to do the right thing in those circumstances. It sets you free from pain. Healing comes to you. And Matthew chapter 18 tells us how it works. Matthew chapter 18 is what comes right after the Lord's Prayer. In that passage, we, hear this, we see this parable of forgiveness, how it works. In that parable, a king, forgives a, another king, a king forgives one of his servants a very large debt. And that servant goes out and finds another servant who owes him a much smaller debt, and he fails to forgive this other servant this much smaller debt. The king hears about this, calls him back into his presence, and revokes the original forgiveness. Now, this is our experience in this whole business of forgiveness, is that forgiveness isn't a very important issue, but we don't get healed and we don't get forgiven because we forgave. What happens is if we fail to, we, we, we receive healing because of what Jesus has done. It's based on not our behavior, but what Christ has done. However, if we fail to forgive, what tends to happen is we tend to lose the grace that we receive. We're a leaky vessel. Anybody talk about vessels being the right kind of vessel and so on? You're not going to be the right kind of vessel. You cannot hold on to the grace of God unless you forgive. And you've got to practice short, you know, may need to forgive someone because of what they said today or 10 minutes ago. I mean, practice keep short accounts with people. Let it go really quickly. Don't hold on to grudges. Don't hold on to those things. It doesn't hurt anybody but you to do that. However, what we've seen over the years is this particular phenomenon. Maybe a little projection. If we don't see God, if, uh, if we don't forgive others, we tend then to see God in that same sort of way as kind of unforgiving. And therefore, we have a hard time receiving forgiveness. If we see God as unmerciful, then uh, we have trouble receiving mercy. If we fail, if we are not merciful, then we tend to project our own behavior on God, think he's somewhat like us. So what's interesting is that if we choose to forgive others, then we have this capacity to walk in forgiveness at a level that people sometimes don't understand. I remember when I first forgave my dad, I could tell you some of the pain that he caused me growing up, but I'm not going to give you all those details. But there was some serious pain in my life as a result of these, my relationship with my father. And uh, when I forgave him, the first thing that I noticed is I was aware of why. I became, became aware of why he did the things he did. I could see the reasons why. And it was amazing because then I was able to really release some compassion and understand that he was a child of his own situation. Grew up in the Depression years, you know, didn't have anything, struggled, struggled, struggled during, during World War II to put things together, you know, and then, then finding, you know, coming out of those circumstances and money being the most important thing because he just didn't have anything growing up, you know, and then thinking that that was really important to me more so than, than really having a personal relationship with him, you know. My dad, instead of offering love and acceptance, he offered us money, you know, and which always was painful the way he did this, you know. But I began to understand him better that that was, he was a child of his own generation. 
and had his own, his own difficulties. And I saw that he transferred some of his difficulties with his parents right to me, you know, and he was doing some of the same behaviors, you know, and forgiving him allowed me to be a different kind of parent to my children. Otherwise, I think I would have duplicated his own behavior. And seeing God in a very different way is my relationship. So it's, it's enlightened self-interest, forget it. But it's not, a, does not require in order to receive healing. However, if you're having a hard time, um, not having a hard time keeping your healing, then this is an area you may want to examine. But let me just say to you, in many places in the church in America, forgiveness of others has been overtaught in the sense that it's almost like a psychiatric couch. We're reviewing our past and like a fine-tooth, taking a fine-tooth comb and going through our past and trying to figure out who we need to forgive. I don't think that that's what Jesus intended. I think that if you have somebody you need to forgive, they're right in your consciousness. As I'm talking about it right now, the Holy Spirit's got their face in your mind. You know who you need to forgive. And it, you know every time you run into somebody who looks like that person, you think about them, they're always in your consciousness. It's hard to let them out of your consciousness. That's one of the reasons you want to forgive them, so that you can focus on other things. So I don't think you need to go back and figure out who you need to forgive 25 years ago. If you don't know, then you don't need to figure it out. Okay. <laughs> Page 8, Medieval Mountain. Okay, we're going to have some fun on this one. This is really the, the crux of one of some of the things I want to bring you. And uh, for, before we do that, though, let's, uh, let's see. It's, we started at 2, though, didn't we? What time did we start? 2.30. 2.30. So we've got an hour. We'll go another, another 20 minutes or so, and then we'll take a break. The medieval model creates doubt. Everybody say doubt. Yeah. Doubt is the culprit that we're dealing with. Unbelief is not your problem, or you wouldn't be here. You believe. You believe in healing. You wouldn't be sitting here otherwise. You believe it's certainly possible. You, your unbelief is like this, you know, there's a God, no, there's not a God. There is healing, no, God doesn't heal. That's unbelief. However, doubt is a big culprit, and the medieval period brought a great amount of doubt into the church's experience. Doubt and unbelief are not the same thing. Because doubt and unbelief, are, uh, unbelief and faith are opposite, you can have faith and doubt at the same time. The same can exist in the same vessel. Yes, sir? Well, that would be unbelief, and the fact that some people have been exposed to doctrines that say that God doesn't heal, that would be unbelief. Uh, in other words, they're completely negating the possibility that God would heal. Yeah. Now, but most of us are not in that category. Unbelief uh, is not our issue. Doubt is. Doubt is translated from the Greek word that is often translated as, most often translated as judge. Everybody say judge for me. Now, judge makes it, gives it a little different feeling, so... Um, but if you put in the idea that uh, discriminate would be a way to translate this word, to discriminate or to uh, disqualify would be even better. The idea of disqualification. Now, here's how, here's how uh, doubt works in some situations. It creates this double-mindedness. Jesus heals, but maybe he won't heal me. That's doubt working. It disqualifies us. It's a thought that disqualifies us. Jesus heals, but maybe I'm the special exception. I think I mentioned last night, maybe I didn't mention, maybe I was talking to an individual, but if I go to a church and I have not preached healing, and the first thing I say to the church, how many of you feel like other people can receive healing, but you just can't? That you're the special exception? Three quarters of the people will raise their hand. 
I mean, I'm talking about churches that actually believe in healing, theoretically believe in healing. Three quarters. Turn to somebody and say, you're not that special. You're not that special that God would leave you out of his plan. See, doubt, what it does is it says, what Jesus has done is not enough. There's something else necessary. I've got to, you know, I'm disqualified in some way. It, it produces this double-mindedness in it. And the, and the theology of the Middle Ages, the medieval period or the Dark Ages, has found its way into the modern church. And so many, many people have medieval ideas about healing that do not match up with what Jesus taught. And it's very, very common. Very, very common to, to encounter these doubts. So let's talk a little bit more about how doubt might work here. For instance, when we talk about chemistry for receiving healing, right in this room, there are molecules of oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen, the three big gases right here in this room, uh, obviously invisible in this circumstance, and there's a lot of other uh, trace gases as well. Now, if you take oxygen and hydrogen, you put them in the right proportions and get rid of the nitrogen, get, them, get it out of the mix, and you flip a switch on where there's a little spark, 100% of the time you'll get an absolutely reliable chemical reaction, an explosion. That's right, an explosion that will produce water, by the way. So power and water will be released in this circumstance. What prevents that from happening right now? Because that oxygen and hydrogen are present. And we can produce a spark by flipping a switch or doing something like that. It's the nitrogen in the mix. Now, faith, faith in Christ... And grace that comes through Christ, when they mix properly, they produce an explosion of power that changes people's experience, their lives. They get healed, they get delivered, and so on. There's an explosion that occurs. It's absolutely 100% reliable. The grace of God in Christ meets faith in Christ, and this stuff happens. The gospel allows us to come to faith, and God's grace comes to us because of that. So we get that thing, but this doubt, the nitrogen in the mix, that prevents things from happening on a reliable way. So what we want to do is be able to deal with the doubt, get it out of the way, so we have this ongoing, reliable experience of God's grace and faith coming together. Everybody get this? It's pretty simple, again. Now, let's, uh, let's get some examples of doubt in the, uh, in the scriptures. You know the story of Peter walking on the water with Jesus, and this particular case found in Matthew chapter 14. Well, we see if we take all the stories and put it together, we get this scenario. It was late at night. The disciples had gone ahead of Jesus in the boat. A storm hits, and what we see in this particular occasion, the storm hits, and the disciples are frightened. And they see Jesus walking on the water, which doesn't help them at all, and they think it's a ghost, and they're frightened by that. And Peter obviously has a different reaction. He says, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come out on the water. And, and the Lord says, come. Peter takes a step out of the boat. That's an amazing step. Yeah. You think about it. That is an amazing step. You know, anybody see uh, Bruce Almighty movie? If you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. It's funny. It's got a few blasphemous moments, but it's funny. And it has a really amazing point to it, a really good point to it. It actually comes to a really good theological conclusion about the nature of God, why he does what he does. But there's a scene in Bruce, uh, Bruce Almighty where, where Bruce is tiptoeing on the flat water. Remember that? Yeah, he's walking on the water. And, but that's not what Jesus was doing, and that's not what Peter was doing, because this was not flat water. This was waves. That makes it stepping out of the boat a whole different matter. You think about it, the boat's 
rising with the waves and going down with the waves. He's stepping out of a moving boat on a moving wave. That's really incredible. In any case, uh, so Peter takes a step out of the boat and he successfully begins to walk on the water. And, uh, and then the scripture tells us, gives us a little detail again, seeing the wind and the waves. He got distracted. And he begins to sink. He cries out to the Lord for help. The Lord grabs him by the hand, pulls him back on the water and says these words to him. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, was it God's will for Peter to walk on the water? Obviously so. He was doing it successfully. Jesus said, come. So it was God's will. So here God met Peter as he did this, and the power of God came for him to do this. But something occurred that Jesus is describing as doubt in Peter's thinking that caused the power of God to disappear from this equation. And so he began to sink. Oh, why did you doubt? Now, if we understand that the word doubt has the word, is the word judge, why did you, let me interpret it for you, why did you disqualify yourself? Why did you disqualify yourself? You were qualified. I said, come. You could have done this. Why did you disqualify yourself? Well, let me speculate for you, okay? I, the scripture doesn't tell us how he did this or why he did, but speculate a little bit. We know Peter, when in the resurrection appearance of Jesus, he, I believe he's, he bows down and says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. So we know Peter reacted in this kind of way. I mean, he may have gotten out of there and he said, oh, my gosh, what am I doing here? Walking on this water. What will the other disciples think? Disqualifying himself. I want to be like them, you know. Uh, we see people do that all the time. They're afraid to step out and do something because they're concerned about what other people might think. Oh, turn to somebody and say, get over it. <laughs> we need you to break out. We need you to get past what other people think and do what God's calling you to do. Everybody needs you to do that. Okay? You know, so maybe he did that. He disqualified himself. Maybe he said, I'm such a sinful man. I had such a terrible thought yesterday. You know, what am I doing out here? Maybe one of the other disciples should be doing this. In some way, he disqualified himself. And as a result of that, his focus changed. Instead of being on Jesus, it was on himself, and he began to sink. Now, if you were to ask Peter today, what is the secret of walking on the water? I think Peter would respond like this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. See, when the focus is on Christ, when we're doing healing ministry or any kind of supernatural activity, when the focus is on Jesus, then I qualify based on what he's done for praying for you. Jesus will heal you because of the cross. You qualify to receive healing because of the cross, not because you're righteous. You're not going to qualify because you're righteous. You're not going to disqualify because you're unrighteous. You qualify because of the cross. I'm not going to qualify for getting you healed, seeing the supernatural work through me because I'm righteous, but because of what Jesus has done. For, so I qualify by keeping my eyes on Christ. You qualify by keeping your eyes on Christ. So the doubt no longer plays a part of this. Doubt often has to do with these ideas that somehow focuses back on Jesus. I mean, back on ourselves, rather. Another situation, cursing the fig tree, Matthew chapter 21. We see Jesus and his disciples going from one point to another. This story is in several gospels, so we get all the details from the other gospels as well. And what we see is that uh, Jesus encounters a fig tree. And uh, the fig tree has no figs on it because it's out of season for the figs. And the scripture says Jesus curses the fig tree. The Bible does talk about curses. It just doesn't talk about breaking curses. Okay? And he says these words, which the Bible calls a curse, uh, it, uh, he says, no man shall ever eat figs from you again. 
and they come back to that area again after they've gone to the other village, and the fig tree, little detail, has withered from the roots up. In other words, it died when Jesus said this, and now it's evident that it's died. The disciples are really amazed by this small miracle that Jesus has done, and Jesus says this to them in verse 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. If you have faith and do not doubt, you can do things like this, guys. How many of you want a ministry cursing fig trees? <laughs> no. Parking spaces. You know? Money from God, you know, to pay your bills. You know, small miracles, okay? You know, dealing with situations and circumstances. Small miracles from God. You can have experiences like this, guys, if you have faith and do not doubt. Don't disqualify yourself. If you have faith and don't disqualify yourself... Because you've been qualified because of the cross. So don't let the enemy come and focus you on yourself and say you're disqualified. You see how this works? It's faith in Christ, not faith in myself. Or lack of faith in myself. It's not about me. It's about what Jesus has done. That's where the power is. Pray in his name. And see, you get your answers because of what he's done, not because of your unrighteousness. A lot of people pray out of their own obedience or disobedience and so on. As a result, they get nothing from God. get very little in that way. So you pray according to Christ's righteousness, not your own. You'll get lots of stuff from God. And it'll come as a transforming experience for you as well. In any case, here, if we could take these, this, this characteristic phrase here, where if you have faith and do not doubt, let's, let's retranslate it and use the word qualify in it and judge in it and see if what we can come up with. If you have faith and don't disqualify yourself or someone else, you can do miracles like this is what Jesus is saying. If you have faith and don't judge yourself outside the grace of God, you can have a consistent ministry of healing. If you have faith and don't discriminate against yourself for a reason or for any reason, everybody say any reason. Any reason. You can't dis- if you disqualify yourself for any reason, that is doubt. That is what doubt is, those disqualifying ideas that come to us. We qualify because of the cross. It is finished. As far as God's concerned, what he has done for us is done. And it's enough for God. But we disqualify ourselves. The devil's very clever in coming and accusing us and suggesting to us that we don't qualify for various different reasons, including these medieval ideas that we're going to talk about that create doubt in a moment. If you have faith and don't discriminate against yourself for a reason, you can experience what 12 ordinary men who follow Jesus Christ experience. If you have faith and don't think that you're the mysterious special exception, again, turn to somebody and say, you're not that special. (laughs) You can receive what others receive. If anybody can get it, you can get it. See, if anybody can receive healing here, you can receive healing. God is not a respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. What he'll do for one of us, he'll do for all of us. And that's a very important principle. So you qualify. Any idea that comes to you that says that you don't qualify is doubt. And you just need to reject it because you do qualify because of what Jesus has done. So you stand on the firm foundation of Christ. All other places are shifting sand. No stability any place else except on the rock of Christ. See, and when you do that, then you get your prayers answered. It's not based on my righteousness. I can have a bad day and still Jesus will answer my prayers. 
I can have a good day. He still answers my prayers because it's about him and not how I feel. It's not about my own righteousness or my calling or purpose in God or destiny. None of that has anything to do with getting my prayers answered. It has to do with what Jesus has done. The stability of the cross of Christ, the stability of the work of Christ in our lives creates this kind of phenomenon where we're off the roller coaster of our own righteousness, off the roller coaster of our own feelings, you know, and we are stable because of what Jesus has done. James chapter 1 says this, this is page 9, but if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach and it will be given to him. That's an encouragement to believe God for divine guidance. If we need for God to guide us in some particular specific matter, then he will guide us. If we need to know who to marry or who not to marry, uh, you know, all those issues that the scriptures are not entirely clear about specifics. You know, I don't know if I, when I opened my Bible, I did not find the picture of my wife in there. Um, you know, so I had to have specifics about that, you know. And, uh, you know, she, I knew it before she did, though. So it's a, who gives to all men generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask, but let him ask in faith without any doubting. Without any what? Doubting. Without any, without any judging themselves outside the grace of God. Without any discrimination against themselves or someone else. Believing that it's theirs because God wishes it to have them to have it that it comes by grace because of the cross, without any somehow thinking that they don't qualify for this. You qualify because of the cross. You qualify because God has qualified you. And that's a very important point. You don't qualify because of your behavior or anything else. You qualify because Christ has qualified you at the cross. The blood of Jesus has done the job that you needed to do. As far as God's concerned, you qualify. It goes on to describe... Let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You see the instability here? Driven and tossed by the wind. Circumstances are blowing them all over the place. Today I feel like God wants me well, but tomorrow I don't feel like it. Today I feel like that God wants to bless me. Tomorrow I don't feel like he wants to bless me. We continue, what we tend to do is tend to let our emotions dictate to us what we think God's will is. And see, that is not a stable place to live. We have to have something more stable and, and understand that God's blessing comes to us and he constantly wishes to bless us because of what Christ has done. We stand on the firm foundation of Jesus. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man expect that he'll receive anything of the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here it is, see. Jesus wants to heal, but he, maybe he won't heal me. Jesus wants to heal, but maybe I'm the special exception. Jesus wants to heal, but, 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 but. Remember, there are no buts in the New Testament. Jesus healed everyone who came to him in the multitudes. The good and the bad got healed. It wasn't about righteousness. It wasn't about them being righteous. He healed people who were the poorest and the richest, the smartest and the least smart. Everybody was able to receive because he just simply came to him. You qualify because of what Jesus has done. First common doubt that you run into in the church Maybe it's not God's will. What do you think about this one? Evaluating this doubt based on what Jesus taught his disciples, what they saw, what would Peter say? Maybe if you said to him, maybe it's not God's will, what would Peter have said to you? Or James, or John, or Mary? What they, would they have said to you? They would have said, where'd you get that idea? Jesus healed everyone who came. The will of God was the same for all. 
This good news? Yeah, it needs to be the same for us too. That was so that when we are into a situation where we're praying for someone, we have confidence when we stand in front of them that God wants that person well. No matter where they've been, what they've been doing. I have a little dog. Her name is Honey. And uh, Honey doesn't care where I've been or what I've been doing. She's just glad to see me when I walk in the door. Completely accepting of me. I believe God has put animals in houses to reveal something of his own nature. I haven't figured out quite what cats reveal, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> Maybe how laid back God is. I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't hear that. What was that? Maybe they're from the devil. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, my father thought so, I think. He didn't like cats at all. So here we see that God's will is for people to receive healing. So this first common gout, see this comes as a kind of a package. God's will is different for different people. It's the first part of the package. The second part of the package is maybe God has a reason for us not being sick, or for being sick. And then the third part of the package is there's a special timing. And see, it makes sense in itself, but it doesn't match up with what Jesus revealed. And so, in other words, the idea is like this. God wills changes when the purpose is done, and then it's his time to heal us. See, that's the idea. The problem is, is that none of this matches up with what Jesus taught his disciples. It's a medieval idea that God has a timing for us to be healed. When is it time to be healed? Now. When did Jesus reveal it? What did the disciples see? They saw the people coming to Jesus and them determining the timing of their healing, not Jesus. The woman with the issue of blood, who determined the timing? She did. She did. Uh, Bartimaeus, when did, who determined the timing there? Jesus was passing him by. He continued to cry out until Jesus heard him. He determined the timing. All the people in the multitudes coming to Jesus, who determined the timing? They did by simply coming when they came. See, it's a very important aspect of things is that God is not somehow delaying your healing to some other time so that he can deal with you. Here's some of the ideas, by the way, the second common doubt. The idea is that God has a purpose for this sickness in my life. It's the enemy, I believe, is assigning a divine purpose for us being sick. And some of the ideas go like this. God's using this sickness in my life to teach me something. And I have often asked people, how long have you been sick? Ten years. And what have you learned? I can't come up with a thing. Because they haven't learned anything by being sick, except that they want to be well. And see, it's, a, it's an idea that's present in people's experience, whether you know, they think that that's what's happening because they've interpreted their experience that way, but you don't find it in the ministry of Christ. Jesus never hesitated to heal someone and say, you haven't learned your lesson yet. By the way, how much pain is good for you as opposed to how much pain is bad for you? I used to think pain must be good for you somehow or another. God's using pain in our lives in some sort of way until I got to uh, a burn ward in San Antonio. A young soldier had a had a track vehicle when I was in the military, track, track vehicle backfire um, fuel all over him. 80% of his body was burned. They rushed him off to the burn ward in San Antonio. Very, very high, high uh, technology burn ward there. And uh, I went down to visit him, and I got into this burn ward, and boy, I tell you, it was an eye-opening experience, believe me. I got in there, and most of the people, there had to be 25 soldiers in this thing, soldiers, sailors, marines, and uh, I would say that 50% of them were screaming. And I said to the, uh, said to the 
nurse, I said, is it always like this? She says, oh, sometimes worse. I said, uh, are these people medicated? She said, oh, yes, to the hilt. They're medicated to the hilt. I said, are they conscious? She said, semi-conscious, many of them. Many of them are hallucinating. And I said, what would happen? They were all restrained. I said, what would happen if they weren't medicated or restrained? She said, most of them would take their lives. I said, I said, I said to myself in that thing, if, uh, if pain is doing these people some good, it doesn't appear to be doing them any good. You know, they're, they're crazy. I mean, it was making them crazy because they were in such pain. So I began that one of the things that began to help me think through on this thing, the whole business of pain. You know what? I don't think I've ever learned anything when I was in pain. I don't think I was ever a better Christian because I was in pain. Quite the contrary. I think that I was probably nastier. You know, I, I didn't have as much patience with my family. If my wife was sitting here, she'd say amen to that. That's the reality, you know, that it didn't make me a better Christian. I think that some people, when they are in pain and they're very sick, that their good char- Christian character does come out. But believe me, they're no better Christians because of it. You see what I'm talking about? And one of the things that happens in this, these circumstances is that people don't receive healing in those circumstances. A lot of times they become angry and bitter. You ever seen anybody get bitter with God because they haven't received their healing? Sometimes their family members get bitter. You know, it's, it's, so it's not really, you know, when we actually consider the ramifications of being sick and not receiving healing, often it's just exactly the opposite of what religious thinking says it does. It doesn't do what people say it does. Maybe God is using this to improve my character. I don't really think it improves people's character. It does reveal sometimes what's there if they're a person of good character. They, they handle it well. Sometimes they do it really well. Sometimes they don't do it quite so well. Maybe God is using this to test me. This is an important point. Uh, back a few years ago, I was ministering in a, in a uh, city. In a, um, you know, I guess I've really gone past the point of break here. Let me finish this story, and then I'll give everybody a break. Um, I, I was ministering in a city in, uh, out west, and uh, we had a number of people healed in, the church, in this particular church. And one of the ladies, in one of the services, uh, she asked for prayer for her eyes. And uh, the team prayed for her, and she got healed. Uh, she didn't need her glasses after this. She came back in, in the next service and testified that she was seeing perfectly. She didn't need her glasses anymore. And uh, it inspired quite a few other people to ask for prayer about their eyes. And so uh, there was uh, six or seven people in that particular service because this one had received healing. She, you know, they, were, they asked for it, and they got it too. So about two weeks later, I was talking to the pastor on the telephone. He says, Roger, you've got to be really clear when you're teaching about healing that there's no test happening. I said, well, I don't teach that there's a test happening. He says, yeah, but people are really confused about that. You know that we had a half dozen people in our church receive healing of their eyes. I said, yeah. He says, well, the other people heard about it on Sunday morning. They weren't at the meetings when we were doing healing, they heard about it on Sunday morning, so they took their glasses off to prove to God that they had faith to receive healing. And he says, our parking lot has gotten really dangerous. <laughs> he said, we got people bumping into the walls around here thinking they're believing God for healing. I said, well, I didn't teach them that. See, the, here's how it worked for the other people. The people that got healed, they heard the good news, they were inspired by this testimony, they got prayer, and they received a healing, and so they didn't need their glasses. The other people, on the other hand, didn't get prayer, didn't hear the gospel. They just took off their glasses to prove to God that they had faith. And they didn't receive anything. There was no test. Turn to somebody and say, there's no test. There's no test to pass. Jesus didn't require people to pass a test in order to get healed. If there was a test, it was to come to him. See, that was the only test. And so 
this is a faulty idea that causes people some problems. When should you quit using your medication? Is there a test to pass in this area? You gotta quit using it in order to get healed? No. No, no, no. When should you quit using your medication? When you need it no more. I mean really need it no more. Okay? There's no reason why you shouldn't use your medication up to the point where you don't need it anymore. And you and your physician, if you have a serious condition, diabetes is a serious condition, cancer is a serious condition, you ought to you know, do what you have to do in order to stay healthy and do what you need to do until you receive your healing. And uh, you know, there's, I know that there's a lot of questions that occur in this realm. The truth is, is I don't ever offer anybody medical opinion because it's illegal for me to do that. I'm not a doctor. If you have a hesitation about whether you should continue a medical treatment because you think you receive healing, go to another doctor if your doctor is not responsive to that. And, and let the other doctor tell you where you are. Get a full evaluation. Now, we do know that sometimes doctors are reluctant to change their procedure even if you received a healing. The reason is there's lawsuits happening, various different things, and they're not often, sometimes doctors don't want to validate a miracle because it doesn't look very scientific. And so, so they are likely sometimes to have you continue to do the same thing that you were doing before you got healed. So if you really did get healed, sometimes in order to get your doctor to agree with you, you may need to get a second opinion from a doctor. But don't be hesitant to go to the doctor to find out where you are on these things. That is not a lack of faith. In fact, if you feel like you received something, you have a medical condition, you ought to go get it validated that it is different and sometimes people receive partial healings. Uh, and if a partial healing is a good healing, because it often leads to a full healing, if you receive a partial healing, then you probably need to know that. Your doctor needs to validate that, you're, if, say, if you have diabetes and your blood sugar is better, but not perfect, not completely perfect, then you need to know where you are so that your doctor can regulate your medication and you can continue to receive from Jesus and keep coming back to him. Does that make sense? Good, good. God is using this in my life to discipline me or judge me. Well, you know, a lot of people have these ideas, and I think most of the time it's just condemnation from the, Lord, uh, from, the, from the devil, condemning us, telling us that we are being punished by God. However, if you repent and ask God for forgiveness, don't you think that God does forgive you? Will he continue to punish you if you really have repented? What would we be if we continue to punish our children after they long repented? Don't you think that that punishment is for that purpose, to bring them to a place of repentance? It makes no sense to continue to spank our children if they really have learned their lesson on that particular issue. Yes? So if you're not receiving healing after you've long repented, then it's not an issue of forgiveness. You probably just need to recognize that this is probably a doubt working for you. Okay? And just know that forgiveness is real and that God is not holding anything against you. God's using this in my life to slow me down. What a dumb idea this is. Sickness is not a good way to rest. It's not a good way to rest. And a lot of people have this idea, you know, God made me sick so I would slow down and listen to him and do all these kinds of things. See, God gives us the spirit to guide us, not sickness. Everybody say, God gives us the spirit. During the medieval period, the Spirit lost its significance. The Holy Spirit lost its significance, and many of the functions of the Holy Spirit got replaced by sickness. The Holy Spirit teaches. Now, medieval period, they said sickness teaches. The Holy Spirit transforms us and makes us like Jesus. 
And during the medieval period, they said sickness transforms us and makes us like Jesus. The Holy Spirit guides us and directs us. During the medieval period, people said sickness guides us and directs us. It shows us what God wishes for us. See, lots of confusion came in during the medieval period. The, the, the functions of the Holy Spirit got replaced by sickness. 